The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Continue with the reading of God's Word. If you would turn to Exodus chapter 15. And let's stand as we read God's Word. Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to the holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord! For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Our great God, we thank you for your words. We thank you for, um, for this song. Um, this song that reveals the joy that belongs to your people. This song 
that reveals the surety of our hope. Lord, I pray uh, for those in our midst who maybe aren't here today, but still need that reminder. Um, Lord, I pray for Jerry Judge as she's uh, in chemo again. Lord, we ask that in the midst of suffering, that she would be able to um, still see your eternal glory. She'd be able to, to meditate on that clearly. And God, we pray that after a little while, you yourself would restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish her. Lord, we want to pray also for Pastor Victor's brother, John, who had a heart attack and now has um, um, what they call a life vest on, and he has to um, um, have people with him, and that's where Pastor Victor is today. We pray, God, that um, you'd minister to John in this time of weakness. We ask that he would have new ears for the gospel that he would hear your good news and he would believe. And Lord, we pray the same for each of us today as we look at this song. We ask that we would hear the good news again and we would believe afresh, we would believe stronger that these realities would, would be our reality. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are a lot of things that happen at church that in some sense might happen also at gatherings of either sec- of even um, secular organizations. We've got baptism, we've got the Lord's Supper. Well, what club doesn't have an initiation ceremony and weekly rituals of some kind? Now, obviously, it's not the same in that God isn't at work in those in a particular way, but I mean on a very general level, right? It's a ritual, it's a sort of form. Also, we have preaching, What society or institution doesn't have lectures for learning? Obviously, again, not taught by the Holy Spirit, but still a talk given for learning. And in the church, we have prayer, and we have mutual encouragement and exhortation, and in secular groups of all kinds, there are moments of silence observed, and there are times of meaningful community. But one thing that likely surprises and a bit confounds those who are visiting a church for the first time is a singing. People don't regularly gather for singing together. I mean, unless it's a chorale or a glee club. But heartfelt, thoughtful, joyful, intense singing, that's weird. In fact, I know a man who looks back on the first time that he saw sincere Christian singing, and that was actually the moment when that he says the veil began to be lifted and, and the Spirit met him there in those songs. And so today I want to think together about Christian singing. What is the purpose? What's the manner? What's the effect of our worship songs? And in light of Exodus 15, how should we today celebrate this God who saves? And if you weren't with us last week, we looked at Exodus 14, which recounts how sometime in the middle of the second millennia BC, about three million Hebrews were fleeing slavery in Egypt. And Pharaoh and his officials had been forced by many disasters to allow it, but it took very little after that to change their minds back. And Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God, he actually wanted to reveal himself even more fully to the whole earth, and so he led the Israelites not directly toward their promised land, but instead back south into Egypt and had them camp right up against the western edge of that sea that divided Egypt from the Sinai Peninsula. 
And as the Egyptian army took the bait and pursued, then the angel of the Lord blocked their way with a pillar of fire and smoke, while the Lord brought an unprecedented wind to open the sea, allowing his people to cross on dry land with a wall of water on the left and on the right. Eventually the pillar moved, allowing the Egyptians to follow. But after Israel had passed through, Moses stretched out his hand again, and the Lord returned the water to its normal course. And we read in chapter 14, verse 30, that thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And what does one do when you've just experienced a massive victory? Whether you're an American in New York on VE Day, or you're an Argentinian World Cup fan, or you're a hobbit after the Battle of Isengard, you're likely to experience a strong desire to sing. And that's exactly how we should view singing in the church. How can we, as those who benefit from the victory of God, not sing? It's not just a sporting event. It's not just singing the national anthem after some Olympic medals are won. It's not even worth comparing with the spontaneous singing that comes over a crowd in the street after a military campaign has been won. I mean, all around us, a brutal war has been raging. A war as long as human history, a war that's cosmic in scope and eternal in its consequences, and the decisive battle of that war has been won. So, we join with Moses and the Israelites, and every Sunday and even throughout the week and in between, our hearts declare, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is the right thing to do. Our God deserves this sort of adoration. And so Psalm 33 says, Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Now, if we're looking for the simplest way to frame Christian worship through music, we can say that the people of God sing about who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. People of God celebrate who the Lord is and what he has done. And as we go through the passage this morning, I hope you'll see just how rich and how diverse that singing can be. And I'm going to put up an outline of how I see this passage broken down. We'll try to put that back up every time we move into a new section. Now, the first thing that this song does is to state the fact of the great victory over their enemies that God had accomplished. Verses 1 through 5 show us the Lord's past victory remembered. A great victory has happened. The Lord has become my salvation. He's not only the God of our fathers, but something has happened to make us say, this is my God, and I will exalt him. Our singing should remember that great victory in the course of each Christian's life. We were delivered from the domain of darkness into light. We were slaves, but now we're free. We lived in the land of idolatry, but now we behold the power of God over all. And so the fact of that victory informs all of our thoughts about ourselves and this life that we live. Do you remember that victory often? Do you think about 
the circumstances in your own life when that victory was applied? Or do you take it for granted? Remembering the victory of Christ in our own individual lives, that's the starting place for musical worship. Now, this song's shorthand for the Red Sea victory is just horse and rider thrown into the sea. That's repeated twice. But verses 4 and 5 add a little bit more detail. It says, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers. There's a big emphasis on the chosen officers, the elite ones, the commandos, the navy seals. They were sunk, even the best that Pharaoh had to bring. The most advanced military of that time, they were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. It's a very specific remembrance. And our remembrance of God's past victory in our lives should be specific too. We spoke last week of the parallel of how Jesus is our greater Moses to whom we are united by faith. And at the cross, he led his people through the waters of death, bringing us safely onto his resurrection shore, destroying the enemies of our soul in that process. So what horse and rider has he thrown into the sea? Well, let's think back to some lyrics that we sang just this morning. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So in an abstract sense, guilt was an enemy of ours. But Christ satisfied any claim that guilt could have over our destiny. Think about it. Is there any guilt that follows you? Guilt that haunts you? It doesn't need to. When we bring those sins to light in Christ, they lose their power and God declares us clean. They are cast into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Guilt is vanquished. Also, fear was our enemy. Yes, fear of physical death, but that same fear flows back through our lives to intimidate us. With every loss, we feel it. We feel our impending death, loss of relationship, loss of opportunity, loss of safety. But Hebrews 2 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So when you grow afraid, stop and picture the source of that fear as an enemy that has already been subdued by your victorious God. Martin Luther was a man who was in danger from enemies constantly. Persecution was on an upswing across Europe, and many Reformed Christians were being killed. Even though it was the 1500s, people still had the same desires as we do now. They carried around fears of losing their possessions or their relationships or their health or their very lives. And so I think that's why we can identify with Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, when it says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And we should sing many songs like that that speak specifically about that which we no longer fear or that which we no longer fear losing because of Christ's finished work. Jesus has not only vanquished our guilt, our guilt and our fear, but also, that same song says, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Do you realize that as one who has passed through the waters with Christ, you don't need to fear the powers of hell 
You don't need to fear your spiritual enemies. The schemes of Satan are destined to fail in your life. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we never fall prey to temptation, but even those experiences are woven into our story of God's triumph in our lives, and his Holy Spirit is changing us and is powerfully with us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we don't need to fear demons or the occult or powers associated with false religions. These are all Pharaoh's drowning officers. And working from greater to less, of course, that means that you're also delivered from any sinful scheme of other people. Who is it for you that seems to have it in for you with no cause of your own? Do you realize that that person has been made powerless in your life? And I'm not saying that their schemes won't hurt for a while, just like Pharaoh repressing the people of Israel by taking away straw for their brickwork. But while Pharaoh was congratulating himself for his cunning abuse of the people of God, their God was in the process of exposing this mere man who viewed himself as a God for the frail creature that he actually was. And the longer that you walk with Christ, the more you will be able to look back and see just how often those who would seek to hurt you were thwarted with no plan or effort of your own. Your victor protected you. So whatever or whoever is opposed to God's purposes in your life, know for certain that they have been defeated by your Lord who has triumphed gloriously. Sing and celebrate those triumphs in all of their detail. Declare with verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. So the first five verses show us the Lord's past victory remembered. Next, the Song of Moses takes time to contemplate the Lord in all of his greatness. Verses 6 through 10 focus on who he is, the God who is great. They look at these events in more of a, a timeless view. And they say, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. His glorious power, the the greatness of his majesty, is really thought of in two ways here. First, God is victorious over his enemies. Okay, we just talked about that. But notice the graphic way in which it's described in verse 7. It says, you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Fury consuming people? Does this seem out of place to you in a worship song? Should it? Many of the songs of scripture actually do celebrate God's judgments. Listen, for example, to part of Psalm 21. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bow. If scripture is our model for how to worship God, then we need to have a fuller view of who he is. He is love. He is merciful. He's also a warrior. And precisely because he is love, he must shatter the enemy. This is for the good of the redeemed, for the honoring of all that is pure and pleasant and true. The king is renewing his realm Perfect justice will be established. Praise God that he's up to the task. Because he stands decisively against evil. 
we will be preserved from it. But do our songs celebrate that? We're actually ending today with uh, one of the few songs that's still circulating today about God's judgment. Um, So I hope that God matures us past our cultural blind spot uh, that tends to see love and holy judgment as contradictory rather than complementary. Another way that Moses and his company are singing about God's greatness is by taking the enemy's delusion of how they would have an easy victory and then contrasting that with the fact of God's actual overwhelming ease of victory. So we have this little vignette in verse 9 where we hear the Egyptians' actual thoughts. It says, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire will have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Such arrogant confidence from the Egyptians. But then that verse is bookended by this poetic picture of God simply flaring his nostrils to rearrange nature. And then essentially just exhaling to sink his enemies like lead into the deep waters. Did you know that our God in Scripture frequently mocks those who think that they are great? And we should love that about him. Psalm 2, there's this, this picture of the nations and their rulers conspiring against the people of God, and we see that reality still in play across the world whenever Christians are persecuted. But we're told in Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Because King Jesus is on the throne of the universe, any opposition to his purposes should make us laugh too. We don't need to fret when we watch the news. We don't need to feel like our society is out of control or people are out to get us. Now, we shouldn't be personally smug. We shouldn't be personally mocking those who feel like our personal enemies. But when we consider the, the, those who have flagrantly positioned themselves as enemies of our God then it's entirely appropriate for our songs to have a slight flavor of taunting in them, even, because God alone is great. God alone is great. And so like the kid who hides from bullies behind his black belt dad, it's right for us to celebrate the leveling of the arrogant that's bound to happen. Our God is great. Our God is also holy, And this is emphasized in verses 11 through 13. His holiness has to do with his sheer otherliness. There's no one like him. He's utterly unique, utterly separate from anything to which we could compare him. Notice that it says specifically in verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, why does it say among the gods? That's that's kind of weird for us, right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul explained that though there are many so-called gods, there's really one God through whom all things exist. And so on the one hand, an idol has no real existence. But on the other hand, there can be real spiritual power behind objects of false worship that try to lure us away from the one true God. So earlier in Exodus, we spoke about the many gods and idols of Egypt and about how the plagues were specifically appointed to put that system of worship to utter shame. And we spoke about how God is going to put to shame any object of worship that we choose over him as well. 
So part of the worship that we see here in chapter 15, verse 11, is the declaration of God's holiness, his worth beyond anything else that we could be tempted to worship. And that is a very good use of our singing. I'll give you a personal example. I can focus too much on maintaining financial stability. I can forget that in just a little while, I inherit a treasure that neither moth nor rust can destroy. And so it's really helpful for me to sing about God's holiness, his worth, beyond the material wealth that I might be tempted to crave. He, he is unique. He is utterly different than anything like that that I would look to to satisfy myself. So I, with lyrics, I can sing, You have turned my poverty to riches, found me as an orphan, took me in, brought me as a beggar to your table, offered me the cup that covers sin. This world has nothing for me. In plenty or in hunger, you are all I need. So like that, identify your idols, the things of this world that you're turning after, you're turning to, you're running after. Instead of God, identify those things and then we can write and sing songs about how that thing that's used by so many people to replace God is actually nothing like God. All the wealth or power or pleasure or success in the world is not like him, majestic in holiness. It's not satisfying. Let's sing like that when we're together, glorifying him in his uniqueness and purifying our own desires in the process. How else is the Lord holy? Apart from his sufficiency, how is he entirely separate from all others? Well, his power over creation, that alone should, should just overwhelm us with awe and reverence. In verse 12, the people sing, you stretched out, uh, sorry, verse 12, you stretched out your hand, the, your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Now, we know that it was the waves that actually swallowed the Egyptian soldiers. But here in verse 12, in some sense, the whole earth is viewed as responding to Yahweh. Kind of like an orchestra responds to a, a conductor's baton. And it, it just shows us his holiness, that he is over all of the created order. The natural elements will always side with their creator. They will willingly do his bidding. And so we sing songs like from Psalm 104. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He spreads out the heavens and walks on the wings of the wind. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. In these verses about God's holiness, we also see the song's only reference to God's steadfast love. And it's worth noting that in Scripture, whenever God's love is referenced, it's always linked to his other qualities and, and his specific actions. So, for example, in Psalm 136, uh, it's a great example. 26 times that psalm repeats the line, His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And in each of those verses, it gives a different evidence of that love. Something concrete that he did or is doing. See, God's love isn't defined primarily by how it makes us feel. It's easy for the world to embrace the notion of a God who has steadfast love if we keep that notion vague and we just imagine his love according to our own cultural standards of love. 
But God's love is defined by what he does, by his other qualities. And so his love leads us, we read here, his steadfast love guided them by your strength into your holy abode. His love leads us into what we need, which isn't always, at first, what we feel like we need or what we want. Verse 13 links that steadfast love to the guidance of his people into his holy abode. And it seems like in this verse, holy abode, it refers to the camp of safety on the other side of the Red Sea with God in the cloud and in the fire dwelling in their midst. It's a temporary dwelling. It's like a shepherd's hut in the pasture land. And we can celebrate that his steadfast love has led us into his presence as well. We're not yet to his holy sanctuary But even now, we have arrived at his holy abode. His Holy Spirit is in our midst, guiding us, setting us apart to share in his majestic holiness. And so we celebrate that loving presence of our holy God with lyrics like, Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my true Father and I thy true Son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. So we've celebrated the Lord's past victory. We've meditated on his greatness. We've treasured his holiness. And the Song of Moses closes with a section that hopes in the Lord's future victory. Verses 14 to 18. Remember, the people were redeemed from slavery. They were delivered from Egypt, but they were not yet in the promised land of inheritance. They were with the Lord in his wilderness abode. They were not yet in his sanctuary. And the same is true of us. And so we need to take what we've seen from God's past victories, we need to combine it with his promises for the future, and then in light of that, we celebrate his future victories because they are certain. They are as certain as if they've already happened. The Israelites start by considering in verses 14 through 16 how the enemy armies will melt away before them. This is when they go into the land under Joshua. They're already anticipating that they're going to have to do that. And it says, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Do You see the connection of the past to the future. The, the people he purchased in the past will be protected in the future. Just as Pharaoh's soldiers sank like a stone in the past, all other enemies will be as still as a stone in the future. How do we think about the battles that still lie ahead and the, the certainty of God's victory there? There's an old 80s song that gets after this concept of celebrating God's future victory. I'm not suggesting that we start singing it again, okay? Some songs, stylistically, they just have their heyday, and then they need a replacement, or they need, they need to be reworked in some way. But the lyrics to this song said, In heavenly armor will enter the land. No weapon that's fashioned against us will stand. When the power of darkness comes in like a flood, the battle belongs to the Lord. He's raised up a standard, the power of his blood. The battle belongs to the Lord. And we sing glory, honor, power, and strength to the Lord. Those lyrics certainly remind us that in whatever darkness we have to pass through, the Lord is already there through the cross. He's already equipped us with everything we need. He will win the battle. 
There are also songs that think about the victory that is happening right now of his gospel having victory over sin and Satan across time, across cultures, increasingly so. Listen to how this song thinks about God's past victory and then uses that to celebrate his unfolding future victory. With a shout you rose victorious, wresting victory from the grave, and ascended into heaven, leading captives in your way. Now you stand before the Father, interceding for your own, from each tribe and tongue and nation, you are leading sinners home. You're the author of creation. You're the Lord of every man. And your cry of love rings out across the lands. And it's that leading sinners home where the song of Moses ends also. Verses 17 and 18 foretell, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Christian, do you know that the Lord is bringing you in and planting you in his sanctuary? That's, that's the end game. Now, where is his sanctuary? What is his sanctuary? We have images from scripture, right? We have, well, it's, it's a mountain of glory and wisdom like Sinai. It's a land of flourishing, a garden like Canaan and Eden. It's a city of justice and beauty like Zion. But these are just shadows of the coming reality. I think songs from the past centuries did a better job of speaking about God's sanctuary that's, that's going to be established. We don't seem to have many songs like that these days. Not that give much detail anyway. If we sing about heaven or the Lord's sanctuary, we're more likely to focus on what it doesn't have, namely the, the pain and the sorrow that we're experiencing now. Like, like Brett read this morning, Scripture does talk about that, of course. It's, it's beautiful, no more tears. All things are being made new. But um, when we focus exclusively on what it won't have and not on what it does have, sometimes it feels like we, we treat entering God's realm like a consolation prize to make our loss acceptable? Is it possible that we 21st century Westerners are too busy clinging to our own kingdoms here on earth to really get excited about what awaits us in the new heavens and new earth? But if we were to write a song that would really get after verse 17, I don't think it would be a slow and reflective song. I think it would have like some real energy and anticipation, like something like um, U2's uh, where the streets have no name. You know, you can just feel that, that uh, electric momentum building. Well, it's on that hopeful note that this song ends. And likely the song was repeated quite a few times. Verses 19 through 21 are really just, they zoom out to show us more of the whole scene, to help us imagine what it was like. Miriam, the sister of Moses, she's leading this entourage of women who are dancing with tambourines. They're singing the song back an octave higher, which was the style in the ancient Near East. Uh, and Miriam here is, uh, she's called a prophetess. It's not clear if that's because she played a role in writing the words of this song or, or if the word of the Lord was being spoken by her in other ways to the people. But with her and with the song of Moses, we see that God's very words and the people's celebration were fused together. And may the same be said for our worship. 
The Song of Moses is perhaps the most important song in Scripture, and that's not only because of its placement right after the Red Sea, but also because it was the first of its kind. It was a type of future songs that would say the same things about who God is and what he has done. And this song is actually mentioned again in Revelation chapter 15. The scene there is the throne room of heaven, and seven bowls of wrath are about to be poured out by angels down onto the earth to complete God's victory over his enemies and deliverance of his people. You know, those two things always go together. Defeat of enemies, deliverance of his people. And the Apostle John looked up and he saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And he also saw those people who had conquered the beast through their faithfulness unto death. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, those words are not the words of Exodus 15. So why is it called the Song of Moses? Well, the themes are the same. Celebrating God's victory accomplished. Contemplating God's greatness. Treasuring God's holiness. Celebrating the future victory that is soon and sure to come. In a sense, it is the same song. And the point is that the defeat of the Egyptian army was just a preliminary sign of God's overall victory. And the same is true with the songs that we sing. You know, they may rise out of our specific context and they're going to use different words and different tunes. But if they declare with great breadth and detail and awe the character and the works of our God, then we are singing the song of Moses. We are the people who have been redeemed by the blood of the true Passover lamb. We are the people who have been led through the waters and raised to a new identity on the other side. So whether you're looking back to the Red Sea or forward to the Sea of Glass, celebrate this God who has become your salvation. Sing to him as a group. Sing as an individual. Sing with your heart. Sing with your mind. Sing with joy, sing with trembling. The Lord is a warrior. He is great, he is holy, he is victorious. So enthusiastically chant that you are free from guilt and melodically roar that you have nothing to fear and repeat back to him and repeat back to each other that his steadfast love has won your celebration forever. Lord, we all sing many songs in our lives. We sing along with the radio. We get songs stuck in our heads. I pray for each of your people here today that they would know deep down that your song is the song of their life. I pray that they would come back to your deeds and your character, that those would be the objects of their meditation. I ask that it would, it would give rhythm to our lives that we would live in step with this music. And Lord, I pray for any unbelievers who may hear this message.
God, I ask that they would want to join in the song, that they would share in our joy forever. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.